Thank you, Mr. Mack. It's a good passage, isn't it? Some of you might be sitting there going, that's a long passage, and it's already quarter past ten. And Robin's going, he just called out what I was thinking. <laughs> right, so we'll have to, we'll have to go quickly, but I, I think we should pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are good and that you love us. Please help us to understand this. Help it to apply to our lives. Help us to see you as you really are and to experience more of you. Lord, we come from a nation that is thirsty and we come as people that thirsty for you. Would you, would you fill us, Lord, so we bubble over with this? Lord, would you give us more and more of you until we are satisfied one day one day when you return more and then we want more. We want to know you more, we want to experience you more, we want to be more like you. Father, please, by your spirit, speak into my heart and the hearts of those who live there. Amen. Right! The woman at the well. Uh, Pam and I had a discussion. Unfortunately, she has not given a name. We thought maybe Wilhelmina or something like that would be a good name for her, but it's not, it's not very uh, Jewish or Samaritan, is it? It's interesting here. Um, we, we've jumped back a little bit. Remember last week we started our series on uh, second chances and how Jesus comes to give us countless second chances um, by forgiving us and showing us his grace and mercy and kindness. And we looked at Zacchaeus last week, the wee little man who climbed up a tree, Jesus to see. Uh, today we, we're actually jumping back in time a little bit uh, to an incident that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. Um, he's in uh, Judea, he has to go back to Galilee, uh, and, and we're told by John here, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, we're told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's uh, what you read if you look at the very fir- um, uh, verse uh, 4, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Or to put it another way, he had to go through Samaria. Now Samaria, yes it was the shortest route to get to Galilee from Judea, but depending on which sources you say, it's really irritating when you read a couple of commentaries and the one say everybody took this route, and the other says nobody took this route. What we do know is that the fastest way from Judea to Galilee, geographically, is through Samaria. What we also know is that the problem with Samaria is that it's full of Samaritans. Sort of like, I didn't know there were Samaritans in Queensland. The Samaritans were a, uh, they were the dregs of what the northern kingdom of Israel had been. So if you know the history of Israel, uh, you had uh, Saul, we did this uh, a little while back, Rotter. And God got rid of him, put in place David, and said to David, I'm going to, I'm going to basically bless you, I'm going to give you an heir whose kingdom will never end. Uh, through you, I'm going, to, I'm going to do amazing stuff. Basically, through you, I'm going to send Jesus. Jesus is the, is the heir, humanly speaking, of David, the saviour of the world. Um, there were some people, however, when David's son Solomon um, cocked it, 
that decided they didn't want to be part of that. And so they decided they were going to separate, and what you ended up, you had the ten northern tribes of Israel, so twelve tribes in Israel, the ten northern tribes separated and set up their own kingdom with their own king, uh, and things went bad there. And eventually it got so bad, well, first off, one of the things they did, they said, well, we're not going to go to Jerusalem and worship, because, you know, that's Jerusalem, and we don't want to be beholden to them. They set up their own place of worship, golden calves, uh, they rejected David's line. In fact, uh, the, uh, well, I'll come to that in a second. Uh, things got so bad, they, they, they resisted God so much, that eventually, it's about 721-ish, BC, the Assyrians came and they annexed the northern kingdom. They had an interesting model. They would take people away from where they lived and bring other people in so that the land was still looked after. And so what you get in in Samaria by the time of Jesus is a hodgepodge of people. Uh, Racially mixed and religiously mixed because all sorts of gods came in, all sorts of weird things. Um, But also the Samaritans, well, they had some sort of heritage with God. However, if you ask them to show you their Bible, their scriptures, it would be a lot shorter than if you asked an Israelite, a Jewish person. Because they only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That was their Old Testament. That was their Bible. Uh, there's probably one of the reasons is that a lot of the rest of the Bible talks about what God is doing through Judah and through David and the temple in Jerusalem, and all of that stuff which they didn't like. And they rejected that. But, but they had some knowledge of God, even if it was stunted. And, and right at the end of Deuteronomy, about chapter 18, Moses speaks about God sending another prophet like Moses. And they had this expectation of a Messiah, of, of the one who would come to set things right. But, but they, were, they were a messed up bunch. The Jews and the Samaritans were not happy with each other. You might know Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, and it's a a good story because nobody would have thought of a Good Samaritan. They would fight against each other. The Jews went at one stage and destroyed their temple, and I think they were used by the Romans against each other. They hated each other. If you want to think of a modern parallel, think about a Ukrainian having to go through the Russian Crimea to get to somewhere in Ukraine. This is what John says. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He could have taken another route, but no, Jesus had to go this way. Not because it's faster, because we read in the story that he actually spent two extra days in Samaria. I wonder if Jesus had to go because he knew what was going to happen. It's a long journey. They've probably been walking about a day and a half at this stage. They get to the well. Jesus is tired. Don't you love this? Jesus knows what's happening. Uh, Jesus knows all about this woman that's going to come to the well, but he's tired and he's thirsty. God knows what it's like to be tired and thirsty. Isn't that incredible? There's nobody there. Uh, A wise person does not go to the well in the middle of the day because it's hot and you've got to carry it back to the town and it's just stupid. Uh, In those days, um, fetching water was woman's work. But it was more than just a job. It it was also a time to socialize. Uh, One of the few times when the ladies could get together and have a yarn and have a chat and talk about all the latest fashion or whatever they talked about in those days. And here is Jesus around midday, in the middle of the day, and this woman 
comes walking out of the tower towards him. And she comes alone, almost as if she doesn't want to meet anyone. You might remember last week when we looked at Zacchaeus, one of the things I said is that uh, I like that we weren't told the backstory of Zacchaeus. We weren't told the details of his life. And we're not told the details about this woman's life either. We don't even get her name. What we do find out as the story progresses is that she's been married many, many times and that at the moment she is living with someone. And what we don't get when we read through the the passage in English is that the word for husband could actually just mean man. So you've had five men and the man you're living with is not your man. Or it could mean you've had five husbands and the husband you're living with is not your husband. Which is interesting. This woman has got, well, she's got a difficult life. I, I, I wonder if she was that woman that people whispered about and sneered at and mocked. And, you know, that woman that as she walks away, she hears the whispers. It's possible that the woman in the town uh, had labeled her the husband stealer. Or worse. It's possible that she was a victim, that that men just kept divorcing her because they wanted a younger model. It's also possible that men kept divorcing her because she was a really horrible woman. We don't know. By the way, I'm not saying it's right to divorce in any situations. It's possible that she's defying the social norms and ethics of her society by living with a man and not being married to him because because she was desperate for love. It's possible she was living with this man just because she needed to survive. It's possible that she'd been hurt by men so much that she kept pushing them away. I'm talking a lot of possibles because we're just not told the details. What we're told is that here is a woman coming by herself to the well in the middle of the day when nobody's meant to be there and she's got the secret that she doesn't want to let out that she's been married five times and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. She is, she is, she's an outcast. I suspect we meet someone here who is deeply ashamed and alone and hurting. And isn't it true that all of us hide secrets that we don't speak about? Maybe even things that we haven't faced in ourselves yet. That, that when they, they raise their heads, we push them down and distract ourselves with something else. Isn't it true that all of us find ways to cope in this world of ours that, that doesn't seem to give us the life that we want? and cover over the hurts in our life with anything, anything, in the hope that it will satisfy. This woman is like any other person. And Jesus speaks to her and says, could you get me a drink of water? Who's heard the story before, by the way? I'm imagining most of you have heard it. So you could probably stand up and tell it to me. But isn't it interesting that Jesus knows all about her 
knows all about her, and yet he initiates conversation. She's not there to speak to people. She's there to get water and go. Jesus starts speaking to her. And a very human, can you get me a drink of water? She was, she was understandably shocked. I mean, not only is she a Samaritan who no self-respecting Jew would speak to, but she was also a woman. Men. Wisdom from the rabbis. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. This is what the Jewish rabbis were saying. They've got another one that says, um, a man should not speak to a woman in the street even if it's his wife. Why would you degrade yourself by talking to a feminine person? <sighs> Let alone letting her preach. Well, this woman's not going to preach, but... Well, she is. And Jesus says to her, can I have some water? And yes, Jesus actually did want water. But what Jesus wanted more was to start this conversation, start this relationship with her. Because if only she knew who he was, she would ask him for God's gift and he would give it to her. And this word that, that's used here for gift is an interesting word. It's used only here in the whole of Matthew, Mark, and John. But it is used four times in the book of Acts. And every time that the word gift, this particular word gift is used in the book of Acts, it is in the context of the gift. And so Jesus is saying to this woman, if you only knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water. I would give you the Holy Spirit. You would ask me and I would give you God's life and God would come and live with you and God will, tra God will transform you into all that He needs for you to be and you will be God's person. Your life will be good. And the woman obviously doesn't get it. She, she, all she thinks about is this well. And, and, and the question she, she asks Jesus is, you're not greater than our ancestor David. Uh, it, Greek's a great language because you can ask a question and include the answer in it. It's, it's kind of like, nah, you're not saying that, are you? No, you're not. And Jesus, Jesus hears her and, and basically she's having a go at him for for talking with her. She's questioning his power. She's, she's putting her side, Samaritans, versus his side, the Jews. And she knows that life is just the way it is. Once you're stuck with a well, you're stuck with a well. There is no living water. There's no streams flowing down. There's, there is no other option. Once you've traveled down a certain path in life, if I can take this a bit further, that's where you are. You, 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 that's just where you go. You can't change geography to give a river in the desert. And you can't change a life when a life is ruined. Besides which, he didn't have a bucket, so he was wasting your time. Which is a rather stupid comment, because if he had a bucket, why would he ask her to get him some water? Maybe because he wanted to speak, but he didn't have a bucket. She is operating on... A real life needs basis. I need water. Jesus is operating on a real life needs basis. He offers her an inner refreshment that bubbles up to eternal life. 
And, and as we listen in on the story, something of her pain seeps through a bit. And she says, oh, sir, just give me some of this water so that I won't have to come here again to this well. She wants to avoid the well. And it's interesting that Jesus speaks about a fountain of life bubbling up to eternal life and she doesn't hear the eternal life bit. All she hears is, I don't have to come back here. I don't have to face the well and the walk and the people maybe. And then Jesus does this weird thing of turning to her and saying, go fetch your your husband, woman. And it's not that Jesus wanted to get a man there so that they could talk business about, you know, arranging for this proper gift to come because she's just a woman. No, Jesus knows all about her marital status. I think Jesus asks her to fetch her husband because he knows that's where her hurt is. And she says, I don't have a husband and it's the truth. But she's still trying to hide her real self. She's still trying to hide her real pain. And the good news is that Jesus loves us too much to let us hide who we really are and what's really hurting us from him. Jesus insists on bringing our sins and our heartaches and our real life into the light so that he can deal with it. Perhaps it was that Jesus was highlighting to her the bit of her life that she thought would give her life. Maybe she was looking for fulfilling, fulfilling her life in the arms of men, but, but actually never found it. I mean, there are so many things that we look for in life to give our life meaning and purpose. And, and I've mentioned these things so often. We, we look for family, maybe, or status, or alcohol, or drugs, or pornography, or sex, or control over others. All these things that we think will give our life something to hang it on. And all good things, even when they're twisted to evil, might satisfy for a while, but ultimately they come up short and leave us thirstier than we were before. If you're dying of thirst on a lifeboat, you might think that salt water will satiate your thirst for a while, and you might feel the coolness of the water as it goes down your throat, and you might rejoice that at last you've had a drink, and then you'll die. And we end up alone, like this woman, ashamed of the place that we've gone, that we've come to. We might think that we can pull the wool over God's eyes. Oh, oh I, I don't have a husband. But he won't let us. And what we've got to realize is that God knows the very best of us, and God also knows the very worst of us, and yet God still speaks to us and says, if only you would ask, I would give you what you need. Jesus knows all about this woman. He knows about the fact that she's had five husbands and perhaps even the husband she's got is not her husband. Or she's had five men and, and, and she's now in this, uh, uh, just this de facto relationship against all the norms of society. Jesus knows about it and he still speaks to her. And he still says, if you'd only ask me, I'd give you what you actually need. 
a fountain of life bubbling up within you to eternal life. And you will never, ever, ever thirst again. Isn't that amazing? He still offers that to us. But what does Jesus mean when he says, if you have this gift of God, you will never thirst again? Show of hands, Christians who are always fully satisfied, full of joy and excitement and never thirsty for God, never hungering for more. Oh, good point. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. As Christians, we do sometimes feel thirsty or empty or far from God's love. Often, but not always, when we are looking for life apart from God. That famous line in Jeremiah 2.13 where God says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If we're thirsty, we need to come back to God and to admit our thirst and to look to Him and to allow God's presence and His words to bubble away in us, to change us, to point our attention to God, to transform our thinking. But ultimately, we will only ever be fully satisfied when we are transformed to be like Jesus. Because in this world, we live in a desert. And what's even more stupid, we can, we can have a bubbling spring and we can turn the tap off and say, I'm not going to drink. Or we can, as, as God speaks in Jeremiah, turn away from Him, who, by the way, is living water, and try and find our satisfaction elsewhere. And, and what we need to do is to say, God, it's not working. And God says, duh. I think the water that Jesus gives is a relationship to God. And what I love about Jesus' description is that it bubbles up to eternal life. That's the end point of this water, of this gift, is that we get to be with God forever. But until that day, maybe we are more like the psalmist, Psalm 42, as the deer pants with desperate desire for water, so our souls long after God. What we need is living water. What we need to do is say, Jesus... Jesus, fill us. Not just fill us, bubble in us. Bubble in us so that we anticipate the day when we are with you forever and there is nothing evil or wrong in this life or in this world. The woman obviously is thrown by Jesus' supernatural knowledge. She says, well, I see you're a prophet, sir. But I don't want to talk about this sort of stuff right now. So let's throw in a nice religious question that we can distract ourselves on. And we won't have to deal with the fact that you just raised my big hurt about this husband thing and not being satisfied in life perhaps. Uh, I'm I'm guessing at her motivation because John doesn't tell us some details here. But but she does throw the religious question back at him, doesn't he? So tell us, why do you Jews worship there and we worship here? And Jesus says, oh, my dear woman. And I love that. It's not a condescending deal. It's a my dear woman. Yes, salvation comes from the Jews. And yes, you guys have got it slightly wrong. Your, your, your faith, your 
your understanding of God is stunted. I should probably read exactly what Jesus says, not give you my version. He says to her, Dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Listen to this. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's obviously very clear what Jesus is saying there, isn't it? It's made more complicated that uh, the ancient Greek writers didn't bother to write in capital letters. And so which spirit is capitalized and which spirit... Well, that's not quite fair. They either wrote in nothing but capital letters or they wrote in nothing but little letters. So it doesn't help us either way. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus says the time's coming where where you worship is going to be immaterial. And he says, God is spirit, and so we must worship him in spirit. On the level of God, we, we must relate with God. Now, can we relate with God in spirit if God doesn't do something? No. We need God's spirit to come and live in us. That's why Jesus offers living water, which is himself, which is, which is the Holy Spirit coming in us, so that our spirit can speak with with God and relate to God. But Jesus says something else here. He says, the Father desires worship that is in spirit and truth. Now this in part means we must worship God for who he really is, but quite frankly we can't grasp that because God's God and we're not. And in part this means we must worship through Jesus who is the truth. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say here that the Father requires people to worship him in the spirit and in the truth. Jesus says worship the Father desires is worship in spirit and truth. And a while back I read a devotion by a man called Skyjitani who pointed this out. And I, I, I agree with him. He he suggests that what Jesus is saying is that the worship God requires is worship in spirit that is truthful. That is truthful. That is without pretense or pretension. See, this woman, unlike all of us, wanted to pretend or to put up a mask that she wasn't that bad. Go and fetch your husband. Oh, it's okay, I've had five and I'm living with somebody else now. Go and fetch your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. You know, we, we do that, don't we? When, when somebody like, pushes a button or, or shows us a little bit of how bad we are, we, we shine the best light we can on it because we want, to, we want to be seen as the best version of ourselves, even if it's rubbish. We want to pretend to be someone that we're not. We, we don't want to own up to our, our, our failures, our sins. We don't want to own up to who we really are. We don't want God to know, uh, but perhaps we don't even want ourselves to know. And yet Jesus says that God desires worship in spirit and in truth. All of our being, honestly, before him. C.S. Lewis, who's a brilliant thinker, 
puts it this way. He says, we must lay before him, before God, what is in us, not what ought to be in us. We must lay before God what's in us, not what should be in us. If I'm not being honest with God, well, my focus is on myself. My focus is on making sure that I look good enough for God and for everyone else who might be listening in. And my focus is not on God. And so if I'm not being truthful with God, I can't actually worship God because I'm not worried about Him, I'm worried about me. But I'm sure you all come to church and you're only worried about God all the time. Amen. Hey, we're broken people, but what Jesus is saying, the worship that God desires is worship in spirit and truth. That doesn't mean you have to come to church and before you're allowed to sing a song, you have to list all of your sins. It means being truthful with God. I love what Skyjitani says. He says, God only accepts the company of real sinners and never the company of imaginary saints. And the woman makes one last attempt to sidetrack Jesus and says, okay, that's all very nice and well, but hey, it's beyond us. I love the way she says it's beyond us. Not just beyond me, she says, yeah, you don't quite get it either, sir. And Jesus says, well, actually, you know, I am. <laughs> I am God. And she had a choice to make, and, and we know what she does. She, she, she could either choose to pretend that she's okay, to pretend that he's a nutter. She can go, oh, that's very nice, have a drink of water and walk away. But no, she, she unashamedly runs and she tells everyone in town, she says, could this man possibly be the Messiah? He told me everything about my life. And the people she run by is You don't get married five times and live with someone else in a small town and nobody knows who you are. But she unashamedly runs and says, he told me everything about my life. Everything, everything. And they come running and they, and they believe in him, so many of them. And Jesus stays an extra two days. And at the end we have this amazing statement that, that the Samaritans say, wow, we've heard for ourselves, you are the saviour, not us of us, not just of the Jews, but of the world. Chapter 4 of John. I am the Messiah. Yes, you are. We've got several more chapters before the rest of the people click. Yeah. To believe. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. That's all that God requires, to believe in him. And that's what the Samaritans did. Now, interesting side note. Uh, Samaria is one of the first places. So when the Holy Spirit came, uh, if you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. But at the start, uh, I, I think to prove that the, the Spirit was not just for the Jews, but God did it in stages. And, and so the Jews first, and then the, the Philip went out and, you know, with went to the Samaritans and he said, well, I'm going to tell them about Jesus being alive. And they went and then, wow, everything, and, and the disciples in Jerusalem go, wow, this is amazing. Let's send some delegates. Who do they send? 
our mate John goes along to Samaria and they do some praying and the Holy Spirit comes and they're speaking in tongues and all sorts of amazing things are happening. I don't know if they went to this village. I don't know if this particular woman was there. John doesn't tell us. But wouldn't it be nice if John was there and he saw this woman and she came up to him and said, do you remember me, sir, about three years ago you were at my village and we had this conversation and you looked at me a bit strange as if what in the is Jesus talking with this woman with... And he told me everything about me. And you guys stayed for two days. And now, look what's happened. That's purely from my imagination. But wouldn't it be nice? If she was there or not, what they found out that day is that Jesus is Savior for the whole world. And that Jesus keeps his word. Jesus' offer of living water, which bubbles up to eternal life, still stands. What is eternal life? John chapter 17 verse 3. John 17 verse 3. Listen to what it says. This is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the one you sent to earth. Some translations don't even put in that this is the way. They just say, this is eternal life. To know you. And to know that one that you have sent, Jesus. Jesus' offer of life still stands. And so today, are we hiding our hurts? Are we hiding our pains and our guilt and our shame? Are we worshipping God with a mask on our face? Going, God, if you knew the truth about me, you wouldn't be talking. Well, unfortunately, I've got news for you. God knows the truth about you. And he loves talking to us. The prerequisite for getting the gift of God is not being good enough. The prerequisite for getting the gift of God that wells up to eternal life is pretty easy. You say, Jesus, may I have it, please? And Jesus says, of course you may. Why did you take so long to ask? It's just saying, Jesus, I'm broken. And I'm thirsty, would you save me? And that is worship. And the psalmist knew this years before. Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And the Lord will never despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Because that's the worship that God wants. If we are coming to God and going, God, I've got it all together, I'm going to worship you, wave a palm branch in the air. Just don't ask me any questions, don't want to answer. God says, I'm king, you're with me. Worship me in spirit and the truth. Because God only accepts the company of real sinners and never imaginary saints. And as John would write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We can worship Him because, that's not what you wrote, but what I'm saying. We can worship God because if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and He is just and He will forgive us our sins. True worship isn't saying, God, I'm good enough. True worship is saying, God, you're amazing because I'm not good enough. 